I'm joined today by Professor Martin Zizi from California, although he's a Belgian. Professor Zizi has previously taught physiology at the Faculty of Medicine and Pharmacy at the Freie Universiteit in Brussels. Also in his native Belgium, he's previously taught cardiology at the Katholieke Universiteit of Leuven. Dr. Zizi is a medical doctor and a PhD who trained in molecular physiology, public health and biophysics. He graduated from Leuven in Belgium and then had a dual career in the government and in various academies, both in the United States and Belgium. Professor Zizi did his postdoctoral work at the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research and the University of Maryland. Formerly, he was the medical chief scientific officer and chairman of the bioethical committee of the Belgian Ministry of Defence. And he's also one of the founders of the Belgian Veterans Administrators Administration. He led the scientific expansion of the Brussels Burns Unit. He taught physiology and led three active research programs at the KU Leuven and the VU Brussels, which are two of Belgium's premier Dutch speaking universities. Pro Professor Zizi performed expert missions for the UN as advisor and bioweapons inspector in Iraq and also for the biopharmaceutical industry in high stakes, large market value litigations. He's an official member of the Forbes Technology Council and an entrepreneur in innovative mobile medical technology and now working for a company that he set up in California. We're interviewing him today, not for his rather remarkable medical technology and physics and biology background, although I expect we will be talking to Professor Zizi another time about these expertise areas of his. But we're talking to him today about an unfortunate and telling experience that he had during 2022 with the European Parliament, which is based in his own native city of Brussels. Professor Zizi, welcome. I thank you, Alex, to have me. Now, you have quite a story to tell our viewers about the workings of the European Parliament and particularly its petitions arrangements. Um, what you've described to me is that you are the main point of contact for a petition signed by just under 200, in fact, I think uh, to be technical, 189 public yes. health and care authorities uh, and doctors and academics from EU member states and from further afield. And you petitioned the European Parliament to defend the constitutional rights of children in accordance with Article 24 of the Charter of EU Fundamental Rights. I expect I'll read out the text of that article later. Uh, the petition that your 188 associates signed was about the vaccination of children against COVID and the totally, unfavorably, uh, totally unfavorable cost-benefit ratio to them. Correct. First of all, how did you manage to assemble such a number? What kind of networking did you have to do? Well, it is uh, partially with people inside the EU, in France, in Belgium. You know, during the crisis, you have a lot of people who never met each other, never met, never knew about each other. But for some reason, because they say the same thing, they naturally join and coalesce. So in Belgium, you have the COSICO, uh, which is the Comité Citoyen uh, for, for the COVID crisis. In France, you have the CSE, the Conseil Scientifique Indépendant. In Switzerland and Germany, you have like uh, institutions not institution, uh, spontaneously grown, organically grown association. So when we decide to do this, some of us take on themselves, okay, who is in, who is out? Here is a text and we have a rolling text and the rolling text was like a four page document, which doesn't complain because a petition that 
the EU level is not a complaint, is to say, please, member of European Parliament, there is a potential breach of Article 24 of Charter of Fundamental Rights, which is the European Constitution, dealing with the safety and the well-being of children. They are, by nature, entitled to be protected. And because you said it yourself, um, there is no risk for them under age 60, uh, with no comorbidity, the risk posed by COVID or by SARS-2, because that's a virus causing COVID, is one per million. Uh, whereas vaccination might, in children, already give quite a, a lot of myocarditis at the rate of one per 3,000. So given the adversarial effect or no, no incentive to vaccinate because doing nothing would be safer than doing something, we heard you to listen to us. And then we, we had 180 reference also, and we bundled that, we submit on the portal, and that was done on the 25th of January, 2022. So that was the 25th of January, 2022. Did you hear from the petitions committee in February or March? No, no, I expected to, because the normal process is that Petty is assigned the petition. This is uh, actually the, the, the listener and the, the viewer have to understand this is not like a petition to complain. The European Constitution grants the right to citizen to ask anything about the parliamentary process, but also in case there is a breach of the charter, the fundamental charter. So there is an official uh, way of processing those. So Petty, which is a committee, has to decide first, uh, is the petition uh, acceptable or not? If it's ac acceptable and accepted, then it has to be translated in, in 27 language or 24 of the 27 language because some countries speak the same language, right? And put online for eventually support by the people on the European portal. And then they can decide because Petty has a broad authority, very independent. They can decide to a fact-finding mission. They can decide to interview the petitioner or they can decide to audition other people together with the petitioner. And this happens in the course of several weeks and none of this ever happened. They're also able technically to at least recommend that a new committee of the European Parliament is set up. Uh, so they all go by four-letter acronyms, PETI for petitions, for example. I understand, uh, though it's not an area of law I'm expert in, uh, that they did have a role in setting up the Panama Papers Committee and the COVID Committee, or COVI in the European Parliament's yes, acronyms, be, yeah. precisely because they'd heard about these concerned citizens via uh, petitions in the first place. Uh, but you didn't have such joy. How long did it take you until you heard anything from Brussels? Well, it was August 22 when I got a, a very terse mail, uh, your petition has been closed. Uh, it's quite surprising. Never heard it, never look at the process, petition has been closed. But and that was, was during shocked. the summer recess, wasn't it? Yes, of course. Of course, that was perfectly during the summer recess. You know, most things, let's be cynical about it, most bad decision or decision you want to shift another carpet, as we say in Flemish, uh, are done during recesses, as you know. So essentially that was done. And there is two points. First, 
the due process was not followed. But then when I look at the interface of the European Parliament, what happened was that they mischaracterized our petition. And I must speak about our petition. It's not Martin Zizi's petition. Martin Zizi is just a signature because I live in Brussels. I still have, a, I'm a Belgian citizen and I'm representing 200 or a bit less than 200 people of concerned citizen and, and professional. Uh, we work every day to, 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 to get us out of that ditch created by the crisis. So essentially what we have is also a mischaracterization as I was saying, because it's a petition whose scope was, watch out MEP, there is a potential breach of our constitution. And they make it concerned scientists against children vaccination, which was not the topic. Of course, vaccination was a topic, but we focus on the legal aspect, the, the fact that there was a, a legal breach. I mean, if a parliament doesn't respect its own constitution, in which world are we living now? So perhaps you hit a sore spot by requesting legal uh, consideration by the petitions committee. Although, again, in my understanding and in what you've outlined, that is their very role, because since yes. direct elections of the European Parliament commenced in 1979, they have uh, at the European Parliament had a more and more explicit function in the treaties and other apparatus that makes the European Union function, especially since the Lisbon process completed in 2009. The European Parliament has had this really canonized, hasn't it, that they are the voice of the citizens and they have a legal right to be heard and to address possible legal shortcomings and failures in the EU's own system of law, which may have been committed by the other institutions of the EU. Yes, correct. Uh, but You're you didn't very, get that at all. You, what, what kind of response did you get when you pushed on why they had closed your petition? Well, uh, I, I, I did two mails and then I got, uh, after a few weeks, a very nice answered, uh, on, uh, answer on paper. Say, uh, Dr. Zizi, congratulations. Your petition was indeed received and deemed receivable, but uh, the petty... Uh, didn't consider it favorably, and then uh, we decide as a group not to take it further. So, but, so they didn't rule it inadmissible, they ruled it admissible and then booted it out? Yes, correct. Have you and heard anything from, on the grapevine since about what may have caused that? Oh yes, of course, of course, because you know, uh, as I told you, we're never alone in such fights. Uh, seemingly during the meeting, during which the petition came around the table, the chairwoman uh, labeled the petition as being heard by someone with extreme right-wing view. Uh, having worked for a lot of left government, I was shocked, but it doesn't matter. Essentially, when you use that argument saying, this is uh, right-wing, this is uh, non-democratic, this is like neo-Nazi early, the people just stopped thinking. And when it was put on the vote in the Petty Commission, no one supported it except, obviously, the same right, I've heard, but it was not originated from them because if you look at the list of signing, the, the people who signed the petition, I, I, I mean, you would be hard pressed to find a single person with extreme view in those. Would professions. you like to name a few of the signatories, uh, people that our uh, audience may have heard of, perhaps? Oh yeah, for example, uh, Robert Malone, for to to name uh, because he was external. But you have also Elizabeth Paul from Belgium, a public health policy expert. Uh, you have. I, I will give you the full list because it's interesting. Uh, Lee Van Amans, a, a Belgian professor of economy. You know that health 
as an economical aspect and health economy is a science study university. So it was, it represents a broad spectrum of medical and social expertise going from virology to health economy and health public health policies. And at the same time, you had uh, some legal, um, you know, some, some people uh, specialize in, in healthcare litigation. So you had also that there. So a broad panel of expertise actually. Do you have any indication of who this person was, uh, either the formal chairman or, or the uh, the duty chairperson of the petitions committee, who allegedly said uh, we are not going to give this any mileage because it's a far right petition? It was uh, the only thing I don't remember the name I was told, but it must be someone from Danish uh, nationality. That's what I know. That's interesting. Uh, without being definitive on the matter, I will note that the only Danish member of the Petitions Committee of the European Parliament at the moment, if I've understood correctly, uh, is a lady named Margrethe Auken, A-U-K-E-N. Um, yeah, which is interesting for some because she is the mother of Ida Auken, who wrote the Welcome to 2030 piece that got the World Economic Forum into very hot water a couple of years ago, describing owning nothing and being happy. Again, we're not even certain that Mrs. Auken was the woman who said this in the closed session of the petition committee, but I note the interesting possible overlap. And of course, in defense of Ida Auken, it should be said that she has uh, often uh, protested since that piece gained uh, a lot of controversy that she wasn't pushing that future, but merely envisioning it as one of several possible futures. Uh, but in any case, you've been told that a Danish person uh, in a weeklo, in a closed session of the uh, of the committee, said we're throwing this out, even though it's admissible. And armed with that knowledge, you didn't sit back, uh, Martin. What did you oh, do? No, then? no, it's not knowing me actually. No, I'm I'm resilient, and you know it's like a, a boxer in the rope, but you still being it, and you still hit back uh, in a friendly way because there is a process. And uh, uh, my my view about this, they didn't have to tell me. You're right, Dr. Zizi. Uh, they could have said, please, petitioner, come, have a talk. And they could have told us, you're wrong, we don't believe you. That would have been a fair due process. But given the fact that they didn't even do that, they never warned me, I pushed further and I asked at some point uh, the, the ombudsman, because, uh, you know, the European Parliament has an ombudsman woman actually, and uh, this person is the one who made the, the vaccine uh, scandal uh, bloom, if I may say so, because you remember that the contract and the negotiation with the European Parliament presidency and, and uh, the commission presidency took place behind closed door without really supervision. And the ombudsman is the person or the, the, the institution that uh, put that to light made a report and the European Parliament took the report on to eventually request accountability from the Commission and from some of its own member. So I was hopeful, given that track record, that the Ombudsperson would once again say, hey, there is a problem here. And my problem were twofold. Lack of due process, which is an administrative problem, and the fact that they mischaracterize the petition itself on the website, which is a second administrative glitch or problem. And after a few weeks, that we speak now about 11 or 15 of October, I got an official letter from the ombudsperson saying, well, we make our inquiry, 
uh, and we feel that we cannot intervene because there is not an administrative process at all. There is, a, it's a, it, your petition was extinguished by a political decision. And then I said, and I'm sorry, I will be a bit vulgar, what the heck? So now uh, uh, the respect of an article of the charter of the fundamental right of the EU, which is our constitution, can be subject to a political decision by a sub-chair committee that's, that doesn't resonate right to me, but I have that on paper now. I have the EU uh, Parliament Secretary uh, Office and the Ombudsman at odds with each other because you cannot live both ways. You cannot say everything is fine and uh, administratively respected it, etc. And we close it without obviously respecting the process. So a breach of process. And then the Ombudsman saying process must not breach, but it's a political decision. So either or, there needs to be clarity. So you have what in an Anglo-Saxon country would be called the parliamentary clerks, the secretarial office, uh, nodding your uh, petition through precisely on administrative and legal grounds. And then when you escalate it to the ombudswoman, she says, I cannot intervene. My hands are tied because this is a political decision. Well, I will read for the listeners and viewers the three clauses of Article 24 of the uh, EU's fundamental uh, charter, charter, Charter of Fundamental Rights, uh, which is entitled The Rights of the Child, and people can make their own minds up. Clause 1 of the article says, children shall have the right to such protection and care as is necessary for their well-being. Now, I note in passing that that's a famously undefined word whether you're looking at Scottish politics or anywhere else, which we've covered in the past, they may express their views freely. Such views shall be taken into consideration on matters which concern them in accordance with their age and maturity. Clause two, in all actions relating to children, whether taken by public authorities or private institutions, the child's best interests must be a primary consideration. Clause three, Every child shall have the right to maintain on a regular basis a personal relationship and direct contact with both his or her parents, unless that is contrary to his or her interests. Presumably it's the middle clause, clause two, that you were uh, yes. uh, uh, latching onto, but uh, I just note here that clause three of Article 24 of the EU's Charter of Fundamental Rights seems to cut across many court rulings with regard to uh, access to children after divorces. Uh, perhaps that's a political battle for another occasion by other people. But you focused on uh, Clause 2 of Article clause 24. Two, yes. uh, the child's best interests must be a, not the only, only, but a primary consideration in anything which public or private bodies decide about children. Uh, how much detail did you put in that, in your, about, about well, that in your petition? the petition is quite detailed. Uh, actually, when we petition, we, we explain the lack of uh, benefit versus the cost. We also explain the lack of consent because uh, this is an experimental therapy at the end. And uh, we, we supported that by uh, like a 100 uh, peer review uh, publication or, or official report. We even use data from the own government agencies. So we had a fairly well substantiated case to say, look, at the very least, a careful person will say, okay, there is a gray zone there. You know, at the very least, let's let's assume someone doesn't understand anything about vaccinology, biology, and is tainted a bit. It's a it's a trigger for being careful. Primum non nocere. You know, in medicine, you don't want to create any harm. So you say there is a gray That's zone. First, let do me... no harm in Latin. Yes. 
Yeah, that's that's a Latin for say, you shall not do harm. It's a Hippocratic oath. But that's, that's, that would be the first reflex. But these were these reflex were well overruled because uh, they say our policy was the best one. We did the best thing we had to do. The vaccine rollout was perfect. So it's like a mantra that some of those authority um, have convinced themselves with. And it's a bit pathetic because it blinds them to a bigger brother's picture. I mean, you know, if, if you think about this crisis uh, in, in its entirety, Early on, uh, in March 2020 or, or April, you had the Great Barrington Declaration signed by, uh, at the time, I think uh, a bit more than a thousand well-known, worldly known scientists, medical authorities, epidemiologists to say, you should focus on the elderly and the people at risk. The rest of society doesn't risk anything with the SARS-2 because mortality will not be there. It was there. And now the same declaration is signed by 160,000 plus people and still people have not spoken about it. And this is wrong because had we focus and devote the time and energy where it should have been, we would have been safer. Uh, because when you think about it, when a virus lethality rate is two per thousand, that's, that's globally society because under 60 is less than one per million. But let's say globally two per thousand lethality rate if you do nothing. And the fact that we did something and we lost 2% of the people on the planet that had COVID, why 10x difference? So in, in short, I could say we lost 10 times much more people that we should have lost had we done nothing. This is outrageous. So in this context, I would have gladly seen the European Parliament say, let's be careful. Let's have a debate. Let's not take a hard look at the data. Crisis is past. And let's not force it. And no, they just keep on going like a train that cannot stop. Now, that sounds prima facie like a fairly solid case to be taken forward to a, ultimately to a plenary session of the European Parliament and to a, uh, a resolution which would wrap over the knuckles officials of the European Commission and the Council of the European Union. But no, it wasn't to be. Uh, no, do, it you wasn't. Know, do you know anything about the volume or character of the kinds of petitions which do make it through the European Parliament oh, yes, Petitions yes. Committee? It's a bit, when you do the statistic and look on the website, it's interesting because let's say you can have on a yearly basis between 1,400 and 1,600 petitions, out of which probably between 240 and 260 are received, so they're admitted. And if you look at the topic, uh, a lot of those during the year 2020 were uh, linked to uh, the fact that we lack uh, support for a vaccination program. So they want more vaccine, more vaccination program, more logistics. Uh, other were uh, just also trying to, we shall also devote more means to the non-pharmacological intervention, the famous NPI, uh, dear to Neil Ferguson, that say, do shall stay home, shelter ever until the virus goes away. Okay, they want more of that. So those petitions were listened to, were heard, and sometimes even approved, and action were taken. And then on the funny side, you have uh, a few funny petitions. One, uh, one is about the ink of tattoo parlor. Okay, it's, it's a fair point, but 
on the same year, they, there was a lot of talk about protecting the health of the skin of the people going into tattoo parlor because something might be deleterious for the health. Okay. And then the funniest one was a petition supported by a lot of people to find a new name for the EU Parliament plenary session room. So this is an important topic. So you see on one hand, you have the well-being of the children of a full continent. And, and on the other hand, that was not processed. And on the other end of the spectrum, what was processed is let's find a name for a meeting room. I don't know. You mentioned Neil Ferguson, a name well known to UK column viewers. In fact, back as far as the 2000s, uh, we were producing a documentary on him, uh, which was made, I think, in around 2010, give or take a year. Uh, but which refers to the foot and mouth disease outbreak oh, as yes. far back as 2001, uh, in which his modelling for Imperial College London played a very major role. Um, have you come across the work of Professor Ferguson much? And because I ask because you mentioned here uh, these rather improbable, possibly astroturfed petitions that were granted by the Petitions Committee of the European Parliament, calling for non-pharmaceutical interventions and, by the sound of it, praising the, the gospel according to Neil Ferguson. Well, like you said, it's a gospel, but a gospel of a fake religion, if I may say so. You know, if mathematical medicine would exist, we would teach in university. There is no such thing. Mathematical modelization is useful for logistics. So it's good, for example, to know that you're more flu in the winter than the, than the fall. It's good to know that you have more car accident, maybe on the orbital in London than in the middle of nowhere, Scotland, so that you can allocate resource means and money. Essentially, this is a useful tool. It's called smart management. Okay, it's also useful that you plan for casualties in terms of catastrophes, because then you can foresee bad, you can foresee, uh, you know, IV line, etc. But you shall not make public policy decision based on the logistics. You know, logistic is in support of medicine, it's not leading medicine. And what Neil Ferguson and his ilk from Imperial College have advocated for the past 20 years is that they lead the effort instead of supporting it. So that's the first thing where I think Neil Ferguson is very well known among the world of epidemiologists for being a bit of a loony character because he makes the worst prediction. You mentioned and foot, uh, foot and uh, foot and mouth disease. That was fascinating. So you had a problem there, okay, but the, the virus was not lethal or pathological to human, it's a problem for cattle. So usually either you call the cattle or you don't even because it's self-resolutive, but that's a different issue. But what they did, and it was a Tony Blair administration, if I remember well, they collect all the cattle and they make the gigantic pyre, you know, the bonfire of vanities when they put all the beef carcasses and whatever cattle they had to. But guess what? This is not the perfect way to burn carcasses that well, are infected. Martin, we can go into more detail about that because uh, the, the documentary called Slaughtered on Suspicion, which is still available at the foot of the homepage, ukcolumn.org, quotes very frightened uh, eyewitnesses and locals and veterinarians uh, who say that, for one thing, many of the livestock were still twitching and clearly alive when they were on these piles waiting to be turned into a funeral pyre, um, that there was bleating going on, that there was leaching of their bodily fluids into the soil and into the groundwater. Uh, and quite apart from these humanitarian horrors and health disasters, uh, there are also sources quoted in that documentary as saying that, and this is possibly 
uh, indicating some intent before the fact. I'm not naming names of possible intenders, but there were calls by the uh, what had previously been known as the Ministry of Agriculture, just rebranded as DEFRA by that time. The name farming had disappeared from the ministry title ominously, but the Department of the Environment, DEFRA, supposedly made calls to local suppliers of wood pallets in that county, Cumbria, yeah. asking them the summer before the outbreak, uh, could you uh, supply enough pallets for a mass, uh, well, I don't think they named FMD, but a mass outbreak to burn a lot of livestock? Okay, if I may, uh, I don't mean to be rude, but to, to cut you a bit here, because I have an idea about that, and I have fairly, I'm not saying I'm right, but I have a fair understanding of this. Uh, you know that since the 1990, politics has been run by image and communication officer, not by solution. So it's more important to have the OPEC, to have the image of a burning pyre to say the government does something good for your health than to tackle the problem. That's explained probably the pyring, but there is a consequence for public health about this. When you burn a carcass of that animal, you do it in an incinerator, okay? It's closed system. When you do that in the air open, the carcass are not burned well, so the virus is still alive and can be lift and eat goes up. And so there are scientific paper with the plumes of all the spread induced by the pyre of the foot and mouth disease that would never have happened if this was never decided as a solution, which it wasn't. So they made the problem worse. And that's what Neil Ferguson is about. He moreover, made the problem worse. Moreover, the disease affects all ungulates. Deer are very closely related to domesticated cattle. Uh, and deer roam at will over that uh, part of the country. It's famous yeah. for the Lake District. Tourists come yes. especially to see the deer at some point. It's a beautiful time. region, by the way. I love it. And of course, the deer were left totally alone. Yeah. But coming back to the SARS crisis, no, because this is a time machine that's, that, that explains why poor decision can make a crisis uh, more severe. This is what happened during the SARS. Because early on, what you add, uh, you know, I, I, I wouldn't blame politicians for a mistake because a mistake can be forgiven. What I have a hard time to forgive is uh, when you built on mistake with a second one and with a third one and a lie. That is less, uh, I mean, it, it cannot be forgiven easily. So essentially, they make a very bad model uh, of, of, uh, of SARS casualties based on fake death rate that were not real because they use not the correct input. In a model, if I put garbage in a model, I get garbage out. I can make a model say anything. This virus type and family is a zoonosis. That means for the, 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 the viewers, it can be shared with your cat, your dog, your cattle, your, your pet minks, uh, in total probably 700 mammalian species around us. So when you don't put that in a model that it can be spreading outside of the human thing, then your model is fake. Then again, uh, the, the, the PCR tests that were used for modelization, you know, without clinical symptom, PCR lead to 75% fails positive. So again, you have wrong input in a model. So you have the worst and wrong output. And what's really striking, and that's actually damning too, is the fact that there they were several institutions in the UK, for example, uh, making weekly models and the government, like in the UK, like in Brussels or like in France or in Germany, always shows the wrong, the worst of the worst case scenario because they thought it would force people into compliance and accepting lockdown. So essentially there was there uh, an unneeded um, uh, pseudo solution that was favor based on shoddy work. 
And, and that's why, uh, the, 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 I mean, the work at Imperial College was tainted. And then you remember, uh, I think it was in 2020, no, 2021, the British economy reopened totally. Like the 19th of June in 2021, we said, okay, we stopped the measure. You had Ferguson coming in the news. If you do that before Christmas or December, you get 100,000 extra deaths. None of this happened. And then what I don't understand, because the British journalism is very good usually, it's a model we look for. No one asked Ferguson. And when, when he was asked, you know, like very lightly, he said, oh, I was wrong. Sorry, sir, you were wrong. You're, you're a, an arbinger of doomsday saying the whole planet is screwed up by way of saying, and then you say, sorry, nothing to see, I was wrong, my mistake. No, sir, you need to be accountable for that. So you understand, uh, Neil Ferguson will be famous, and I'm not sure he will be famous for his scientific work. He will be famous for all the glitches he forced international government to do based on a modernization that mostly always shoddy at best. And I'm sorry to be strong, but I have enough. We, we, many of us have had enough of that. We actually have a series of four articles that we are halfway through publishing on UK Column right now by a retired school headmaster from Northern Ireland. I think one of Northern Ireland's longest serving educationalists, Hugh McCarthy. And he entitles the series, What Are We Doing to Our Children? And in all four parts, he asks, is anyone accountable for these failures of health policy towards children? Similar language to article 24 of the Charter of Fundamental Rights of the European Union. And yet it seems that the framers of policy are getting away with their mistakes scot-free. UK Column does what it does, what it can, uh, to wrap over the knuckles those who've clearly failed. Uh, for example, when Ferguson was found to be a total hypocrite, there may have been scheming in the background by his adversaries within the model, within the bubble. But when he was found, uh, having seen his mistress during a strict lockdown that his own models had uh, insisted upon, I remember that we entitled that episode of UK Column News, Thou Shalt Not Covid Thy Neighbour's Wife. Uh, but there he is. He's still in post. Uh, nice but Yeah. Are you going to take this lying down? Uh, you can name names if you wish to. You can, uh, for example, identify members of the European Parliament who sit on the petitions committee, whom you had expected to support you, who are anything but far right, who who chickened out, uh, if you think uh, that's safe. I, I, think, I think I can, we, without accusing this lady of bad ill, because she was always supportive. It's Michelle Rivasi, the French member of uh, Europe Ecologie Les Verts. She was uh, just for our non-French speaking listeners. This is a Green Party member. This is as far yeah. from the far right as you can get. Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, she was the one with a few others who tried to bring uh, Ursula von der Leyen into accountability for handling of the the contractual regulation, the contractual negotiation between the big pharma and the European Parliament and the Union, actually. And so she's on the good side of the debate and she knew about the petition. And I think she, she was in her mind intent to bring it to COVID, for example. But when the vote, when, when you know, when push comes, came to shove and when she had to vote, you know, party line makes it that she could not even vote for that petition, which is sad because as I said, as soon as you use the word, it's like a scarecrow, extreme right, People, they, they, they go away, which is stupid because, I mean, you have to read the text instead of being judgmental on, on, on very superficial 
layer. So I think, yes, some member could have done more, but I think there were orders because the party, you know, you have such thing as a party line in politics and, and those MP, they wish sometime to do something and sometime they told not to. Yeah. But uh, I on, know on that the continent, Michelle, of course. Rivazi, Michelle Rivazi is in her last term. She doesn't, uh, she's a biologist, so she's a very sharp person in this debate. She's on the good side. It's a large term, so I expect for her now to be uh, more liberated, and I expect more punch from her, which on I'm sure On the continent, it, it's often claimed that you don't have party whipping. They, uh, at most, will call it party discipline. It's supposed to be an Anglo-Saxon disease, and yet, at the European Parliament, they always talk about the chief whip in any group, don't they? You do have a few non-inscrits, the uh, non-aligned members who uh, cannot get themselves into any group because the bureaucracy doesn't allow them. They haven't got a sufficient number of like-minded yes. people from uh, other countries to form a group with, or they may have been thrown out for a disciplinary issue by their group. Uh, there are some non-inscrits in the petitions committee as in the other committees, so perhaps they may have been more favourable to you? Yes, it's a possibility. We will not know immediately. But for me, it's quite a disappointing. I'm disheartened because, okay, I may have my opinion on the crisis, which I think are borne by the evidence. And I, since two, three years, not three years, I want to have an open debate. I don't pretend to be right, but if I'm wrong, prove me wrong, please. Prove me wrong. I, I, I would gladly apologize with myself and say, okay, I'm an idiot. I'm fair with that, but we are denied even the committee of just a, a normal conversation, which is not okay. And after three years of crisis, I, I you know, I was, a, I'm born in Europe, obviously. Uh, my father was Italian. So for me, I believe in a European bloc more than individual nation state. I, I love Belgium. I love the muscle fries. I love Italian pasta. My father was Italian. But at the same time, I think in the geopolitical world, the European Union makes sense. Okay, but when I see that uh, our own constitution is trumped, uh, I say, what are we be doing? What are those people in Brussels doing? When I see that uh, now with the global mass surveillance that we have in the West, I ask myself, what is the difference between China with the social scoring thing, uh, Russia with the internet of Russia, you know, controlling every citizen at all time, and us? So are we losing the fundamental tenet of democracy? That's what I'm very um, wary about, because I think if we don't pay attention, the light of the enlightenment are being switched off in front of our very eyes. And that's not okay. So for me, democracy is essentially messy. That's the beauty of it. No one agrees. That's why we avoid making mistakes. That's why we avoid rushing into the solution. That's why sometimes we make progress. But if there is a top-down uh, decision-making cycle uh, based on whatever conflicted people exist, we're, we're losing everything. And freedom of thinking is part of our precious gift. Uh, and I tell you something provocative for the English uh, listener. You know, the Magna Carta from King John was what? 1250 something? 1215, or, uh, reissued in okay. 1297. Okay. So I feel we go back before that time. Because if the European, if the president, if the European, the EU president can decide whatever she wants, well, we are, it's bizarre. It's a bizarre word. Let's put it like that because otherwise I will become very mean and I don't want to sound like a mean person. It's very, very interesting that you've ended up on that note, Martin, because your perhaps not very uh, appreciated countryman, Guy Verhofstadt, always likes uh, to say histrionically that continental parliamentary 
that democracy is superior to English-speaking parliamentary democracy because uh, the speaker, supposedly, in an Anglo-Saxon model, has too much control over parliamentary business. Um, but you have actually put your finger on the, uh, the sore point there, haven't you, that uh, you have gone back in Europe on the continent, specifically to the divine right of parliaments, uh, very much the, the battle which we had in both England and Scotland in the 17th century, based on our Magna Carta heritage, um, was the question of if you got rid of a divine right of king or restored the sovereignty of the people and the, 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 the monarch's obligation under God to make sure that the crown governed well, all the staff of the crown, were we, uh, as they said in the House of Lords in 1770 actually, were we throwing that all away only to replace it with a divine right of parliament, to have a bunch of lords lording it over us because they were parliamentarians? I like, actually, I like this discussion as well as I like the petition and all the, the possibility of this interview, because I really think behind the crisis is a moment for the people of Europe, of the world, of the UK, of America to understand what do we want? What is a democracy? How do we want to run together a society? How do we position yourself versus what we call autocracies? And this is one of the core questions that the crisis essentially revealed and magnified. And I believe, because I'm a student of history, I love to read a lot, and I'm impressed by some of what the British um, system uh, obtained. It was not easy. I remember time of Cromwell, having read about it. I remember all the succession of the Tudors, which was also a messy time. But I think that uh, there is something good in the UK. And look, I will tell you my view. Even with Boris Johnson, actually, all the measures for COVID were removed in the summer of 2021. And that's the first country to do so. So that shows that the British system, albeit it has many problems, is still working, but you don't want to lose it. And I think uh, I like also to quote uh, someone from the US. You know, you, you, the US was created uh, on just the reversal of the, the, the you know, you know the, 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 the monarchic idea. And, and I think Thomas Jefferson once said that the seed of the king has to stay empty. And that complete what you said when you, we don't want to replace a, a, a divine king by divine parliament. The, the seed has to be empty. That's the only way to have a pluralistic society. But I think maybe I'm wishful, I, I wish too much, but hey, I'm fighting for it. There are, as you well know, differences uh, within even member states of the EU, let alone between the EU and Britain. And this isn't all politics. This is all this is also culture, understanding of the yeah. law of the land. You're quite right that we had, uh, even in Scotland, I think, uh, a less stringent lockup. Uh, we, we sometimes call it lockup instead of lockdown for obvious reasons than continental countries did in practice. Because even when Scotland, for example, and many parts of the UK were in a tier four lockdown and were told thou shalt not go to church, thou shalt not speak in the supermarket, this could be ignored in practice in many places by people who felt, felt comfortable in their skin. And although there was plenty of officious behaviour uh, by uh, police and public uh, staff of all kinds, shop workers, that was the more the exception than the norm. Uh, at the same time, and it went on longer, uh, in your native Belgium, you had to have a mask on when you left the house. Uh, if you were in a car at one point, you were asked by the police, what was your motif de déplacement? Yeah. Uh, this this was going on. The, the, Dutch, so the Dutch police would not enforce that. At the same time, you could just cross the unpoliced border to the Netherlands and move around freely, probably because of the Protestant enlightenment. 
heritage in the Netherlands, move across another invisible border, literally invisible and unpoliced, to Germany or Luxembourg. And at some point it was the police sent you, sending you a letter saying you will queue up outside your front door at 9am tomorrow to be swabbed in the nose so that we have a DNA register of everyone. Uh, you can't account for all of this by the EU uh, or by the continental civil law system, can you? It's cultural differences. I agree with you. There are a lot of differences in reflex by the culture. Uh, and it would be interesting for sociologists to debrief that crisis on, in, under this lens. Uh, because I think, for example, Germany behaved differently than, even if the policies were the same, the application were different in Germany, more strict in Austria than in France or Belgium or Holland or the UK. And in the, the, the paradigm of that is US, in the US, even in California. So you, you have difference between states. So there are states like Florida and Texas didn't implement a lot. And a state like California, New York implement a lot of the party line. But even in California, county per county, some police department said officially, we're not going to enforce that. So the sheriff, because it's elected, an elected official named the sheriff said, uh, no, I'm not doing this, this is going too far. So you see, there is a mosaic of be a spectrum of behavior in, in, in America, but also in Europe that is linked directly to the culture and the way the system function. And actually, if you look, it would be interesting to look at their statistics. It will be very interesting in a few weeks or months to compare Florida uh, versus California. And if Florida does better, then we have an answer, right? You're in Santa Clara County at the bottom of yes. the Bay Area there. Uh, how were your county officials? Were they one of the ones oh, that banned handshakes? One of the worst, because we're, we're in the eye of the storm with the big tech. You know, the big tech, not to name them, not to, do, to make free advertisement, they make more billions not working than working. Because, you know, when the world stops, when the people stay home, you need to order food, you need to order movies, you need to go to grocery, you need uh, grooming, uh, whatever. So the servicing by software had a huge bump. And now they pay the price and rectification of that because essentially they laying off uh, last year it was around 70,000, just around here where we are in the peninsula. So between San Jose and San Francisco, there's this place called the peninsula in California, 70,000 people were let off in tech. And this year, the forecast is 120, 150,000 extra. But for every person laid off in technology, uh, there is a the family, there is a school, there is grocery to be paid, there is a subscription to whatever. So there will be a trickle-down effect. So I think the realignment post-COVID crisis in California will lead to probably a major economic and social crisis. But yeah, Santa Clara was not a good place to be during the crisis. I had, uh, for my own company, I had, uh, you know, you can subscribe to a, a government portal to become essential because of what we do, we could label ourselves essential. Uh, in which true, so the people could come work in shift, having distance in the law offices. But honestly, I always hate those words essential versus not essential, because then you split society. Uh, you're better than me. You, you're, you're an addresser, you're not essential, get lost. Oh, you're a police agent, you're essential. This is also one of the consequences of that crisis, the division between uh, element of society that led to lack of civil discourse. Because we have to talk to each other, to compare notes, to, to go through. And here we were split by also decision maker with essential, non-essential youth against old, you, you know, all these type of politically driven social division that were useless. And in the end, deleterious for us, because uh, I mean, this is this was not okay. Dividing people is not okay. When you have a crisis, you want to bundle them up and say, 
let's say we did the opposite of what Churchill would have done. Martin Zizi, on that note, we will thank you very much for this interview. I'm sure it will not be the last with UK Column. Uh, just in the pre-recording chat, we have broached a number of possible interview topics with you in future, either by myself or one of my colleagues. Uh, the medical data issue, does it belong to patients or not transnationally? Debbie Evans, our nursing correspondent, has been at the forefront of asking about that in Britain with its unique NHS state model. Uh, you've experience in proteomics vaccine design, and you've said to me that you believe the COVID vaccine health crisis is only just starting. Uh, a number of things that we could talk about in future. Perhaps we could have another go at Neil Ferguson's modelling. Uh, all oh, yeah, we can discuss model versus model. Uh, yeah, no, well, don't get me started again. <laughs> Martin Zizi, thank you very much indeed for this interview today. Thank you, Alex, and have a great day. Bye-bye.